Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Matthew, the 26th chapter that I'm looking at in my Bible, and I would encourage you to be finding Matthew chapter 26 as well. Just as we have sang together and we have prayed together, let's continue that by reading and studying in God's Word together as we continue on in this part of our worship this morning. It is a delight to see everyone on this not quite but almost winter morning, especially to those of you who are visiting with us. I'll just echo the welcome that Josh has already extended to you. It's really great to have you with us. We do have several of our number that are out for for sickness and and travel and things of that nature, but we're glad to have our visitors with us. You're helping to fill in some of those empty spots, and we're just appreciative of your presence today. That is really the beauty of uh, what God has set up in His church, that we're able to come together and we can be an encouragement to others and others can be an encouragement to us. Mutual edification. It's a beautiful thing that God has designed. This morning brings to a close our preaching theme for 2017. We have spent the last 11 months taking sin seriously. And that's certainly not to say that we didn't take sin seriously before, but hopefully now we take sin even more seriously. And in the last 11 months, we have covered an awful lot of ground. We've talked about some specific sins. We began the year off with a bang, talking very candidly about sexual immorality. We've talked about some lesser talked about sins like idolatry and bitterness. We've talked about stains and rat traps and hot stovetops. We've looked at some of the tools that God gives us for combating sin like shame, church discipline, confession, repentance. We've even spent some time talking very uh, in-depth about our enemy, Satan, the devil, as well as a couple of Q&As about the devil and about sin and even about repentance. And as is the case every year when I've done these preaching themes, I've appreciated so very much your good attention, your feedback, your response to these lessons. Because while talking about sin is probably not everybody's most favorite topic to talk about, It is always needful, isn't it? It's always needful that we speak where the Bible speaks about things that in many ways is going to be the difference between heaven and hell for us. Sin is mankind's greatest problem, always has been and always will be. This morning we want to wrap all of that up with this final installment in the series. And in many ways it's kind of just an amalgamation of many of the ideas and concepts that we've talked about over the last several months. And I want to do that this morning from Matthew the 26th chapter. Would you read with me? beginning in verse 73. In Matthew 26 and in verse 73, there the Bible tells us, Matthew 26, 73, that after a little while, the bystanders came up and they said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. They bound Him and they led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he felt remorse. He brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and ultimately would be crucified, 
Both of these men that we just read about, both of these men sinned grievously. What Judas did in betraying the Lord was truly awful. But not to be outdone, Peter promptly went out and he denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. Both of these men completely and utterly failed the Lord on this night. Yet there could not be a bigger difference in how their stories ended. One of these men went on to become a giant of faith in Jesus' church, preached the first gospel sermon, converted the first Gentile family, wrote part of the New Testament. Peter's name is always listed first amongst the apostles. And the other man? The other man, his failure became permanent. When in the darkness of that terrible night, he took his own life. Judas' name is now synonymous with betrayal and cowardice and deceit. There could not be a bigger gap between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot. Yet in reality, the only difference between these two men is how they handled spiritual failure. And in fact, the difference between these two men, I think, is summarized quite well in Proverbs the 24th chapter. Would you find Proverbs 24? Because there the wise man says, in Proverbs chapter 24 and in verse 16, he says, though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. But the wicked, the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. Two men fell, but only one got up. And that is the difference between Peter and Judas. Both of them fell, but only one of them got up. What about you? What about you? Whenever you fall, are you Peter or are you Judas? When you sin, do you know how to get up? Do you know why to get up? Please don't make the mistake of thinking this morning that somehow, well, that's not really that big of a deal. It's inconsequential. It's trivial. Or maybe it's just really kind of obvious. I mean, come on, Josh, we all know if you sin, you just ask God for forgiveness and bang, God gives you forgiveness. That's all there is to it. Listen to me very carefully this morning. Young people especially listen to me here. I'm not asking if you know the procedure for what you ought to do whenever you have sinned against God. I'm asking you this morning if you will know what to do when you're not even sure if that procedure even applies to you because you are so far from the Lord. Do you know what to do when you're not even sure that the Lord would even hear a prayer from your lips if you even knew the words to pray? When you have distanced yourself from the Lord, when you have fallen so far, so fast, that you cannot even begin to imagine or fathom that God would even be interested in you at this moment. The truth of the matter is, while sin is all equal in the eyes of God, in our eyes, there are sins that are far worse. And sometimes we commit such sins that completely devastate and wreck and ruin our lives, so much so that we are damaged and scarred by it for our entire lives. We look back at what we did. And we just cannot believe. I cannot believe that I did that. But I did do that. Despite coming to church ever since I was a little kid. Despite sitting through numerous sermons and Bible classes. 
Despite all that I knew and the fact that I knew better, I did it anyway. I sinned. And now I am embarrassed. And I am humiliated. And I am overtaken with grief. Just like both of these men. In that moment, when that moment comes, what will you do? Will you do like Peter? Or will you do like Judas? I do believe that your answer to that question is the difference between an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. This morning, I want to talk with you about what these men experienced. I want to talk with you about spiritual failure and overcoming spiritual failure. I want to set before you this morning three superly fundamental yet vitally important realities that will help us to understand what it means to fall seven times, but to get up eight. Start with me in your Bible in 1 John chapter 1, please. In 1 John chapter 1, because I need to begin this morning by saying that it is absolutely true, you need to just mark it down, that you will fall. Despite your best efforts to avoid temptation and to avoid sinning, the fact of the matter is, you will fall. In 1 John chapter 1, John talks to us here about the realities of living the Christian life. And he says in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, in 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, We make Him a liar. His Word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, those verses aren't in the Bible because we're not ever going to need it. No. We are going to need those verses. We're going to need that instruction. In fact, we're going to need that instruction a lot throughout our lives. I was talking with someone the other day. We were talking about some parenting kinds of things. And I just kind of happened to offhandedly mention how boys, boys have a tendency to do dumb things. And I then elaborated on that by saying when you put boys together, they do really dumb things. And I said I'm able to speak from experience about that because I was, am a boy. And in fact, growing up, I was the oldest of four boys, and we did lots of dumb things. And the person that I was talking to wanted to assure me, Josh, that's not just a boy thing. The person I was talking to had girls, and they were able to speak candidly and say, Josh, girls do dumb things. And girls together do really dumb things. And then after they do those dumb things, they go and post about it on Facebook. But the truth of the matter is, boys do dumb things, girls do dumb things, and it got me to thinking, old people do dumb things, single people do dumb things, married people do dumb things, we all do dumb things, we all sin. Kind of like this guy that we meet here in Luke the 15th chapter. Would you find Luke chapter 15? In Luke 15, Jesus tells one of, if not the most powerful of all of his parables. And as he begins this story, he begins the story by saying something that I think probably would have left his audience in a state of shock. Like they cannot believe someone would do this. 
In Luke 15, read with the beginning in verse 11, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. This young man comes to his daddy and he says, Dad, I just wish you were dead now so that I could go ahead and get my inheritance. But since it doesn't seem like you're going to die anytime soon, can I just go ahead and get my cut anyway? We would hear that, someone doing that in real life. How awful that would be. Man gives him his portion of the inheritance. Verse 13, not many days later, that younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Maybe your Bible says riotous living. Let's just call it what it is, sinful living. This story tells us, and we'll read more of it in just a moment, this story tells us about a young man who did some very dumb things. And the fact of the matter is, each and every one of us in this room, I think, can probably relate to this guy. We can put ourselves in this story because we all know. We all know what it's like to do what he did. We all recognize that we are sinners. Given half a chance, the old man or the old woman, that we want so much to put away, That old man or that old woman, they will come back with a vengeance in our life. They will storm our heart. They will take the place in our heart that only Jesus is to occupy. I want you to listen to me very carefully this morning. As I talk about the idea and the reality that you will fall, please understand, I am not saying this as somehow that's an excuse for us to sin. That somehow that is a rationalization for us to sin. As if somehow in some way, that well, well, that's just normal. It is not normal. There is not anything more abnormal in all of God's universe than our sin. That is the fact of the matter. And it is important that you and I understand that reality because if we don't understand the abnormalness of sin, we're going to run into some big trouble. For example, there are people, I am convinced, there are people who believe that baptism is just something magical. That not only will baptism wash away your sins, But baptism will also wash away your desire to sin. If you think that, you need to stop and rethink your drink. For example, do you know, do you know about the Oneida flatware company? You're familiar with Oneida flatware? They make forks and spoons and silverware. Probably one of the more prominent brands of that. Does anybody know where the Oneida flatware company came from? Most of you don't know this about the Oneida company, but that company started as a result of a religious commune. A group of people, religious folks, Christian type folks, started back in 1848 in Oneida, New York. A bunch of religious people trying to figure some things out, trying to do some things together. They came to the conclusion that if you are really a Christian, then what that means is, is that means that you are never ever going to sin. Christian perfectionism is what it's called. They decided that if you are a Christian, then you're going to live perfectly, that you will never, ever fall. But as they worked with that, and as you had all of these men and all of these women living in this commune together, living in close quarters with each other, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, they come to realize that things like lust and sexual temptation was still a very present reality for them. And so what that commune decided was, they decided, well, I'll tell you what we'll do to fix that. Anybody who wants anybody, well, they can just have anybody. 
Anybody and everybody can sleep with anybody and everybody. Look, there. Hey, that fixes that. How about that? What about that? Hey, that's kind of setting the bar kind of low, but there you go. That fixes the problem. You see what happens when people decide that they can't sin and they just will not ever sin? People start making all kinds of crazy and outlandish excuses. People start trying to to change and tweak the rules. People start denying the truth of God's Word so that they can pretend and tell themselves, I'll never fall. Kind of sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Wasn't Peter the guy who before denying the Lord three times, wasn't he the guy who said, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll never fall. And so you need to make certain, I need to make certain, that yes, when you come up out of the waters of baptism... Yes, you will be washed clean of every single sin. And yes, God's power and God's might and God's grace, they will be with you to help you to break the stranglehold of sin. But you rest assured, you will still find that temptation is an ever-present occurrence in your life. And the chances are quite good that somewhere along the way, you are going to fall. Which brings me to this second truth this morning. And that is that when you fall, you can get up. That's the good news here. You can get up. You know, we live in a society that is increasingly uninterested in that idea. The idea of getting yourself up. If I sin, what many people have decided is if I sin, I'm just going to kind of plop down right in the middle of this. I'm just going to stay right here in the middle of this. I'm going to announce to everybody in some kind of fashion, in some kind of way, that, well, there wasn't anything I could do about it. I had no control of it. This just happened to me. There's not anything I can do about it now. I'm just stuck. It's everybody else's fault, don't you see? They made me this way. I'm a product of my environment here. I'm a victim here. Society did this to me. I'm helpless. I can't change. I won't change. I'm unable to change. In fact, a psychologist, he did some research on this, as to why it is that some people tend to bounce back from failures of various kinds, while others, others don't. They just kind of get depressed and they stay that way. After doing some extensive research about that, what he found is that one of the key factors in bouncing back is the belief that people hold about their failures within their hearts. He said, and I'm quoting here, he said people that give up, They believe that their situation is permanent. That the bad events that are happening in their life, that they will persist and that they will always be there to negatively affect their lives. In short, people who believe that they can't get up, don't. They just stay. Contrast that with the attitude of that prodigal son in Luke 15. Would you go back to Luke 15? As this severe famine arises in the land, And it causes this young man to be in great need, verse 14 tells us. Verse 15 now says this, So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17 now. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Look at this guy. There's no give up and quit there. 
There's no, well, I'm just stuck in this place. I'm stuck in the pig pen and there's not anything else I can do about that. There's no blaming others, pointing the finger at other people. You know, hey, where's all those guys who were quick to help me waste all of my money on alcohol and booze? And hey, where's all those women who showed all kinds of interest in me when I had lots of money in my pocket? There's no talking of victimization here. There's no rationalization. There's no excuse making. This young man recognizes that he has failed. That he has fallen with a big capital F in all of that. But what he says about that is he says, I don't have to stay a failure. I don't have to fall and stay there. Life is much better in my father's house, he recognizes. And so he says, I can get up. This man had within himself, just as all of us have within ourselves, the ability to change and to start doing right. He was not stuck. He could get up. He could go home. And I want to suggest to you this morning that a huge part of that, if you're ever going to get up after you have fallen, a huge part of that is going to be having a right perception of God. Let me ask you this morning, what do you think about God? Specifically, whenever you sin, when you fall, what do you think God thinks of you? I saw a video the other day. It was a, a preacher in a denominational church. He was doing kind of a, a, a man-on-the-street kind of video, but he was doing this with, with young people especially. And he was going around and he was asking just a bunch of young people, he was asking them, what does God think of you whenever you sin? He put all of the responses together in the clips, and, and there was a lot of answers, but they were all pretty much the same. Well, God is angry at me when I sin. God is disappointed in me when I sin. God's wrath is going to come upon me when I sin. Lots of answers along those veins. Do you know what? I sat and watched that entire video. It was like ten minutes long. Not a single young person replied by saying, you know what? Even when I sin, God still loves me. Nobody said that. Not a single person said that. And I wonder if maybe that video had been made not just with young people. I wonder if that video had been made with middle-aged people and older people. I wonder if maybe the answers would have still been the same. Because the truth of the matter is, whenever we sin, our first thought usually is not, you know what, that was wrong, but you know what, the Lord still loves me. We're not thinking in those terms all that often. But the fact of the matter is, He does still love me. He absolutely does. Look in Romans chapter 5, please. Hold your place in Luke 15. In Romans chapter 5, the apostle writes here, beginning in verse 8. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 8, Paul says this, Romans 5 verse 8, that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Can I ask you, why is it that we sometimes mentally, we draw a line right there after the end of verse 10, and we say, you know what, that applies to me before I was baptized, but it doesn't really apply to me after I've been baptized. What makes us imagine that? What makes us imagine that the Lord loved us enough to send His perfect Son to this earth, give Him to die, so that we could be baptized, so that we could have all of our sins washed away, but after those sins are initially washed away, God looks down at us and He says, yeah, 
I don't really love you all that much anymore. You know, if you can't get it exactly right 100% of the time, where you're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, and I mean you're just walking that straight and narrow perfectly, well, then I don't really have much time for you. What kind of God are we imagining? Where did we get that conception of the Lord? Because I'll tell you this, it didn't come from the Bible. Would you go back to Luke 15? Look at that, look at that image of the Father there in Luke the 15th chapter. When this young man decides to get up, something amazing happens. In Luke 15, look now in verse 20. In verse 20 of Luke 15, it says that he arose and he came to his Father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Can God run? Can God run? That's who the father represents in this parable, doesn't it? That the Lord runs to meet the sinner? Maybe there's... Maybe there's been a translation error here. There's some kind of an issue here. Maybe what the Greek really means in the text is, is that the father stood there with a haughty look on his face, arms crossed, and gave a look that said, well, we'll just see about this. No. No, that's not what the text says. That's not what the Greek means. It doesn't say that in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew or Japanese or Spanish or Swahili or any other language. The text says that God is so committed to the sinner that God loves you even when you sin. He runs to the sinner. And because of that, because of that knowledge and that understanding, you can get up. You think about it. If the Lord did not love you, if the Lord did not care about you, we'd be doomed. And there would be no reason at all to even try to get up. But Jesus tells us in this incredible story of a boy who did just about as many things wrong as you can possibly imagine, And yet His Father still loved Him. And that then enabled everything else that that boy was able to do in his life. God longs. God longs for sinners to get themselves up and to come home. Even when you find yourself in the muck and in the mire just like this boy was. Even when you find yourself in the depths of the very worst kinds of sin. You must realize that God loves you fervently and that you can get up. Indeed, you must get up. You know, somewhere on that dark night in which Jesus was betrayed, Peter was somewhere weeping over what he had done. And Judas, Judas was somewhere too. But Judas was telling himself on that night that he couldn't get up that it couldn't be fixed, that there was no way he could make this right. What do you tell yourself? What do you tell yourself whenever you fall in sin? Which brings an end to this third and final important point this morning. And that is, you do need to know how to get up whenever you fall. Does anybody remember the uh, Kevin Costner movie? It's... it's I'm kind of dating myself here. It's now actually about a 30-year-old movie. Do you remember, remember the, the movie Field of Dreams? Love that movie, Field of Dreams. I'm not even the biggest baseball fan anymore, but when I was younger, I really liked baseball, and so I was drawn to that movie. It's a great movie. And there's a scene in that movie that has always really stuck out to me. Uh, Costner, and I can't remember the name of his character in the movie, but he's driving in a van across country, and in the van with him is his passenger, James Earl Jones, the guy who's the deep voice of Darth Vader, 
And as they're talking with one another on that long car ride, Costner's character, he begins to, he begins to just kind of bare his soul. He starts talking about his upbringing and about his past. He talked about the relationship between he and his father. He talked about how he and his father, they just, they're just always fighting. Just fought all the time. So much so to the point that when Costner's character got old enough, he grabbed all of his stuff and he just left the home. Left the house. Was gone for a long time. Went off to college. And while he was away at college, his father died. At which point Costner, as he reminisces, he says, I should have said something. I wish that I had patched things up before it was too late. I wish I had gone home and just said, I'm sorry to my dad. At which point James Earl Jones' character says, Why didn't you? Why didn't you just come home? And Costner replies by saying, I wanted to. I always wanted to. I always wanted to come home, but I never knew how. If that is you this morning, I've got sin. I've fallen. I just don't know how to get up. Then let's fix that right now. Would you look in the parable again in Luke 15? Look in verse 18. In Luke 15 and in verse 18, the prodigal says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. What you are looking at there in verse 18 and then in the verses that follow as well, are those two critical components that we looked at in October and in November. What you are seeing here is confession. You are seeing repentance. And that is how you get up. It means, first of all, that you painfully acknowledge what you have done to God. It means that you own up to your sin. You accept responsibility for the things that you have done. We read those verses a moment ago in 1 John chapter 1 about confessing our sins to God. That's what we do because He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we do confess to Him. But you know what? It's not just enough to say the right words. It's not enough to just acknowledge our sin. There must be some actions that follow that. There must be a change of mind that then leads to a change of actions, a change of life. There must be that 180 degree turnaround in how it is that we are living. And too often, I'm afraid, I tell you, I think I'm guilty of this sometimes. I'm afraid that we give off the impression that the heart of the gospel is baptism. In fact, I preached a a sermon last Sunday morning on baptism exclusively. And we just think that the gospel is all about water baptism. And while water baptism is certainly an important part of God's plan for man's salvation, you just search in your Bible and what you will find that the downbeat of the gospel is in the word repentance. Can I show you that? Just stay right here in Luke. Look in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, I just want you to notice how, how often this pops up just in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 5 and in verse 32, Jesus answered the crowds here. Luke 5 verse 32, He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what I came for, was to call people to change. Go back to Luke 15 again. In Luke 15, just bump back up in the text. As Jesus begins to tell these lost and found parables, why does He tell these parables? Luke 15, verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me give you one more verse in this connection. Look in Luke 24. Look at the end of Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 24, 
Notice how Jesus closes out the Gospel of Luke, how He characterizes His work and His mission in Luke chapter 24 and in verse 46. Luke 24 verse 46, Jesus said to His disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and that on the third day He would rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. It is. It is about repentance. And it is about confession. And sometimes I am afraid that we have reduced those things. Confession and repentance. I'm afraid that we have reduced them. And the idea of dealing with our sin, we've reduced it to just kind of chanting a simple little cliche. Dear Lord, forgive me of my many sins since I last sought Thee for pardon. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Sometimes I even wonder, I even wonder if we even do that much. You see, there's no effort there to make genuine confession to God. There's no intention there to truly repent and to truly change. God, just give me $3 worth of forgiveness in a sack to go because I'm a busy person and i got stuff I need to do. That'll never work. That'll never wash. What we need is we need the humility. We need the determination that this young man had in Luke chapter 15 to confess and to repent even in the face of humiliation, even in the face of disgrace. Can you do that? Can you do what that young man did here in Luke 15? Young people, can you look your parents in the eye and tell them what you have done? Can you maybe look, married folks, can you look your spouse in the eye? Parents, can you look your children in the eye and say, this is what I've done and I am so sorry And I'm asking for your forgiveness. Can you maybe come before the church and tell your brothers and your sisters, I've done wrong. This is what I've done. And I am seeking not only God's forgiveness, but I am seeking the family of God's forgiveness. Those can be paralyzing, almost crippling moments where every fiber of our being doesn't want to do that. Our being wants to just stay where we are. Let's just remain in sin. Let's do nothing. Let's find someone that we can blame for this. Let's tell ourselves and tell everyone else that I can't get up. I'm not going to be able to get up. Let's believe the devil's lies that I'm not able to confess. It's too hard. I'm not able to repent. It's just too hard. Sad reality is, there are some people who never, ever bring themselves to confess and repent of their sins. And as a result of that, they never get up. Which means that they never come home. I'm telling you this morning, nobody's going to be able to leave this auditorium and say, well, I don't know how to get up. I just don't know how. I don't know how to come home. No. You know. You know what puts your feet on that road that leads to the Father's house. It is confession And it is repentance. Now, I don't know if any of this is going to stick. You know, preaching for a whole year on sin, that can have almost a numbing and tranquilizing effect on those who hear such lessons. Especially whenever those sermons are presented in in a place like this. Think about it. Where are we today? We're at church. We're worshiping God. We're doing the right things. We're with the right people. 
We're doing the things that make God happy and please Him. And so the idea of spiritual failure, maybe right now, that's maybe the furthest thing from our mind. Because here, in the strength of numbers, you know, we just kind of feel almost invincible. And so my fear as a preacher is that the things that we have talked about this year, the things that we've talked about this morning, my fear is that those things will, that they will slowly ebb away from us. And then at the moment in our lives that we need them the very most, we will find that our well is dry because we were not able to hold on to those vitally important truths. But maybe, maybe what will help all of this sink in is a story. Maybe we'll remember a story a little bit better. And I'll end with a story. This story is not original with me by any means. But it has circulated for years amongst preachers, and maybe you have heard it or heard some version of it. It is a story from the hill countries of South America in a tiny village in Brazil where there is a modest little home, and there lived a mother named Maria and her daughter Christina. They are not rich by any means, and the house that they live in is barely furnished. A splash of color on the wall comes from an old calendar and maybe a faded photograph of a relative. The furnishings are sparse, just a couple of pallets on either side of the room, a wash basin, and an old wood-burning stove. This family has known lots of heartbreak throughout their lives. The death of Maria's husband and Christina's father at a young age, much poverty and toiling just to be able to scrape by. But Maria had finally secured employment, stable employment as a maid, and while still poor, they were able to provide for the basic needs of their family. But things change when Christina becomes a teenager. Because she then begins to long for something more. The lights of the big city far away called to her. Her eyes danced with joy at the thoughts of going there. While she never lacked pursuiters being a beautiful young woman, she wanted nothing more than to shake the dust off of the dirty, tired, dead-end village that she lived in. Go to that place where things were really happening. On the eve of her 18th birthday, her mother warned her. She said, the city is cruel. You have no money. What would you even do to make a living? Which is why the next morning when Maria arose and saw her daughter's bed empty, and unslept in the night before, she was utterly terrified. She knew where Christina had gone. and She knew what she would have to do in order to get by there. And so in a haste, Maria grabbed everything that she had, all the money that she could find, shoved it in a bag and raced to the bus stop. On the way to the bus stop, she ran into a drugstore and went straight to the photo booth and fed as much money into the photo booth as she possibly could, taking picture after picture after picture of herself. She then grabbed all of those pictures and boarded the bus, and with a heavy heart, she went to the big city in search of her daughter. When you don't have any job skills, and when you're hungry... And when you're too proud to admit that you have failed, those three things will conspire together against you to make a person do things that they never would normally do. And so Maria knew exactly where Christina would be. And so every place where prostitutes would be in demand, bars, saloons, houses of ill repute, Maria went. In every place she took one of those black and white pictures that she had taken of herself and she posted them. She posted pictures of herself on bulletin boards, posted them on mirrors and bathrooms, posted them where they could be seen by anyone and everyone. 
And on the back of every single picture, she wrote in her own handwriting a personal note. Until finally, when all the money ran out, when all the pictures ran out, weeping, she got on the bus and she returned back to the village. A couple weeks went by. And Christina, still in the big city, she came down from the steps of a broken down cheap hotel. Her eyes no longer danced with joy like they did when she was younger. Her face was no longer young and fresh, but instead tired and old beyond its years. A thousand times, she thought, a thousand times she would have traded all those bright lights to be back in that simple village that now seemed just too far away. But as she came down the steps that day, something caught her eye. Because there on the mirror in the lobby, she saw a picture. And she saw a face on that picture that she recognized. She saw one of the pictures that her mother had left of herself. And so she rushed across the lobby and pulled that picture down and she began to sob at the sight of her mother's face. She then turned the picture over. She noticed her mother's handwriting. And on the back of that picture was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, I still want you to come Home. And she did. I tell you that story this morning because I believe that it powerfully reminds us just how much God wants you to get up. Think about it. He has sent a picture of Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ. The express image of His glory. And that picture has arrived here for all of us to see. And it brings to us that same invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, I still want you to come home. Fall seven times, get up eight. God wants you to get up and to come home. In just a moment, Brother Tom is going to lead us in the song of invitation. It is the song, Softly and Tenderly. And the refrain of that song says over and over again, Come home. Come home. No matter how far away you may be from the Lord at this present moment, no matter how deep and how far you may have fallen into sin, we invite you, Jesus invites you to come to the cross, which points the way home. If you need to begin that walk this morning, all things are ready for you to be baptized into Christ and to receive the cleansing and the washing and the healing, the washing away of every single sin, so that you can get started on that road that leads to the Father's house. It may be, brother or sister, that you need to get back on that road. Perhaps you have went into that far country of sin, and you realize you have wasted far too much time. You've wasted far too much of your life, wasting in prodigal living and in sin. You need to know, you must know this morning, That confession and repentance, those are the way back to the Father's house. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, God still wants you to come home. Will you do that? Come right now while we stand and while we sing.